As they say, thank the Lord for PA systems, but Beelzebub does dwell in PA systems. So that's where he lives. Yeah. Now, I was saying Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said that he could guarantee high attendance on Sunday if he just announced in the, in the London Times that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones would be preaching in a swimsuit on Sunday. And uh, so, you know, all kinds of gimmicks get people there. I'm, I'm afraid taking my shirt off would not cause anybody to come back next week. <laughs> Hey, guys, we, but we are really thankful for those of you who are interested in mentoring relationships and Don Riley and his team and the Amen Leadership team will be getting back to you, you know, in, later on this month or early next month to help you set up those mentoring relationships. And you'll notice in the discussion questions, if you look at the ones we have for, even for this week, the ones that say going deeper, those are particularly designed for those mentoring relationships where you're sharing probably at a little deeper level and you're exploring at a little deeper level and they, they require a little bit more personal commitment on your part to disclose about your own life. So those going deeper questions are intended to be a little bit more uh, threatening to answer. And uh, if you have a small group where you all feel really comfortable with each other and you've been together for some time, and you don't mind letting it hang out, you can use those going deeper questions. If you've got a new small group, uh, you might go lightly on those. Uh, that, that might be too demanding in terms of disclosure if you're just getting to know each other. So you might wait until you, you kind of build those relationships a little bit. And the first discussion questions are meant to have meaningful dialogue with each other. And just run with those. Don't let that question, don't let those questions bound your discussion necessarily. We do mean to bind it from football, <laughs> but you know, as long as you're talking about the Lord and about His Word, uh, just let those, those questions be a springboard for you. And we're really glad, uh, you know, this year we have a lot of our young guys with us, a lot of guys from second, some from, not from second, but we got the Cornerstone class over here and, corner, uh, and uh, Crossroads and Agape and our new uh, Young Marrieds and Engage class, and they kind of take up these tables right over here, and we're so thankful. And uh, as you all just kind of spend the year together, mixing and mingling, uh, you'll get to know each other, and we're very, very excited about that. We think it's important, just as in an extended family, for all ages and backgrounds and socioeconomic backgrounds, racial backgrounds, get to know each other, so we encourage you to do that. Hey, we have put on your, um, on your handout the uh, address to send your questions to. Last time, Lon had two questions, but I missed the signal somehow. Uh, Lon's right up here up front this time, so I'll be able to see him and catch the questions that you might have for this week. But let me go back and uh, answer a couple of questions that were asked last week. One was about the apostles and whether they are infallible or not. Or, and you were basically saying, I thought they were infallible, but I said something about uh, apostles handing a revelation down or something to that effect. You see in verse 1, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. The apostles were just, uh, they were fallible human beings just like we are. And they had evangelistic and pastoral roles just like many of you have. Caring for people, uh, teaching Christ to people. But they also had a unique role and that was that they were eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus Christ and were personally commissioned by Him and were empowered to do signs and miracles to verify their infallible Word. And when they wrote scriptures, which in this case were letters, they were inspired by God to write infallibly uh, the will of God. Now, these letters, the New Testament that is, gospels and letters and revelation, other types of literature, they are written with human motivation behind them. The Apostle Paul, as we see in 1 Corinthians, had real problems that he was really addressing pastorally then and there in the first century in that city. So there's a very particular uh, focus on, on 1 Corinthians on the situation in the first century in Corinth. However, at the same time that Paul is writing something personally meaningful by his own motivation, we also know at the same time the Holy Spirit is working through him in such a way that what Paul is writing is God's will breathed out through Paul, through his pastoral situation, and through his letter to the Corinthians so that we have the very word of God. The apostles were giving truth to the church and it was handed down. 
The, the Latin word be, would be traditio, from which we get the word tradition. So the apostolic tradition is handed down from generation to generation through the preservation of the scriptures and the teaching of it. So that would be the apostolic office, and that's the reason that we say we don't have apostles today. Some would claim to work miracles, uh, and I do believe that God certainly uh, works miracles today. Uh, and some would claim to have that gift, but they, they are not eyewitnesses of the resurrected Jesus and were not personally, infallibly called by Him to be apostles. That's the reason I say we don't have apostles today. Now, the, uh, there was a second question about how can we be brothers and family meaningfully when we belong to a church, as many of you do, that has thousands of people in it. Uh, when you get up to around 1,000, you just don't know everybody personally. I'd notice that when you get up around seven or 800, if you're in a church that size, you just start losing touch with who everybody is as a member I'm talking about. So how do you meaningfully operate as family? Well, first of all, you just have to realize that it's like, kind of like your extended family. I've got some third cousins. I don't even know their names. But if we are at a family reunion, I recognize them and receive them as family. And then I treat them as family, even though third cousins, maybe my, some of my uh, second cousins once removed, I don't, I don't even know who they are. I couldn't give you their names. But if we have a big family reunion, I'm going to be looking forward to seeing them. I want to get to know them because they are family. I just don't know them. And I wish I did, but I just don't have time. <laughs> and as Second Presbyterian Church, I don't have time to have an intimate relationship with every one of the, the 3,500 adult members. So how do you meaningfully treat people as family? When they are presented to you and you have opportunity, you receive them as family. And you are eager to know them as family as God gives you opportunity. And, you know, and, and uh, Jesus you know, taught, said to us that we should love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbors ourselves. And the Pharisee says, well, who's our neighbor? That is, who are we obligated to treat as your neighbor? And that's when he told the, the parable of the a Good Samaritan. And he said, who is neighbor? And they said, well, I guess it, I guess it was that guy. Yeah, that's right, it was the Samaritan. So your, your family is whoever's in Christ wherever you can meet them and treat them as family. So, for example, it's the same principle if I, if I go to Indonesia, which I did just the other month, and I'm meeting with some believers there in the largest Muslim country in the world. These people are my brothers and sisters. It's so great to meet them. So if you're in a large church, of course you can't uh, treat everybody intimately, but as you have opportunity, you do. Now, beyond that, I would say, within your big family, you want to have some that you do have opportunity to treat in an intimate, brotherly way. And that's the reason for small groups, for mentoring relationships, even the Sunday school classes that some of you go to, is so that we can build those relationships where we can meaningfully care and share with other people uh, when they're in need, and they can do the same for us when we're in need. So you work in concentric circles, realizing your family is so big, you're just not going to be able to have time for everybody until you get home. And when you get home, in eternity, eternity, that's how much time it's going to take, we will get to know each other intimately. Until then, you take the pieces and the opportunities as, as they come. Okay, well, we, we are studying 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2, and we've seen that the first four chapters introduce the big topic that Paul starts with, which is a divided church, divided over human leadership, isn't it amazing that God will give us a gift of people who will teach us and pastor us and care for us? And what do we do with the gift? We make it destructive by picking up sides. Oh, I like that teacher better than that teacher. This Sunday school is my favorite because I don't like his teaching. And here we go. So we take gifts and we misuse them. How, how typical that is of men like ourselves. And the apostle is showing us where this is coming from. It's coming from things like pride and ignorance. <laughs> so, yeah, thanks for the compliment, Paul. Appreciate it. Uh, so Paul starts off in chapter 1 by addressing our pride. And he says, you all are saying you're following Paul, you're following Cephas, you're following Apollo, Apollos. Did these people die for you? Of course not. And Paul takes us right to the gospel. And the gospel consists of two major fundamental things that God has done for us. Number one, he sent his son 
incarnate out of the womb of Mary, lived a perfect life. We get credit for that life through faith. He died on the cross, removing our sins. What a gift. So we're now justified before God simply by trusting in what Christ has done for us. That's the first big gift. The second big gift Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 2 that we're going to read in just a moment. That's the gift of the Spirit. The gospel includes both. And so often I find in American evangelicalism, we, we tend to proclaim the first reality, but we forget to talk about the second reality in the good news. The good news consists of both the work of Christ and the work of the Spirit. And Paul's going to show how both of these elements of good news are the remedy for our partisanship and for our family divisions that come up. If we'll receive the good news of the gospel of Christ dying for us on Calvary, we will receive the wisdom that humbles all of humanity. We're, because Paul says clearly at the end of 1 Corinthians 1, as you saw, so that let no boast flesh in the presence of God. Who could boast when you were so bad that God had to send His one and only Son to die on the cross for you? What do you have to boast about? And you were dragged out of the dregs. You couldn't do anything for yourself. You had to be dragged out by God. So who can boast? And So who's going to glory in human gifts or human leadership? Who's going to do such a thing when we're glorifying God alone? That's what Paul talks about in chapter 1. Now in chapter 2, he's, he's going to pick up on this idea of the wisdom of the cross. And he's going to say that this wisdom comes to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this, this power, this wisdom that comes by the Spirit is what solves our ignorance. Now we're going to be wise people. So the wisdom of receiving the cross and receiving the gift of the Spirit, that enables us then to be a unified and holy body of Jesus Christ. Well, let's pick up the argument then. After he talks about, you see in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, he says, I decided, verse 2, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And Paul goes on to say, I didn't, I didn't do this with self-confidence and, and boldness out of my flesh. No, he said, I came to you with weakness and fear and much trembling. And my speech and message were not in plausible words of wisdom. I didn't use philosophical categories. I didn't try to be eloquent and elegant. My speech was very simple. And the reason is, he says, because I, I wanted this to be a demonstration of the spirit and of power. I wanted just the simple proclamation of the cross to be the power that persuaded you, not the power of eloquence. Now, any of us who have listened to preachers in, in our lives, we, we're very grateful when some of them, very few of them, are actually eloquent speakers. It, 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 it is a gift of God that helps us to delight in the gospel. So we're, we're okay with that as long as the purpose of it is not to display a man's eloquence. Paul says here, though, I clearly spoke to you in simple terms. Paul, through tradition, was known for that and despised for it by the philosophers. And here's the reason, verse 5, that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We don't want your faith to be resting upon powerful human arguments. We want your faith to be resting upon the power of God, not the power of men and their logical skills. So then he now launches into how we receive this message. It's by the wisdom given by the Holy Spirit. Let's take a look at it now in verse 6. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us 
by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Amen. Well, let's look here in these first four verses and see that the Christian message is divinely conceived. The Christian message is divinely conceived. I have to say to you that the messages of other religions are humanly conceived. You say you're biased, and I say, yes, I am. I'm a Christian. But clearly, the religious messages in this world, even the great religions, are humanly conceived. Paul is claiming here that the Christian gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is divinely conceived. The message is wisdom, verses 6 and 7. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Now, he uses the word wisdom very intentionally. And this word wisdom is used throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. Wisdom is seen as a gift of God. If you'll turn, for example, to Proverbs chapter 3, and that would be on page 1139, 1139. In your ESV study Bible, you will see how Solomon talks to his sons. These are royal sons who are to take the kingship, be in the royal family, Solomon's training these boys about how to live life, how to be a good ruler, how to be a good man. And he says to them in 3.13 here, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding, for the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. That's Solomon talking to his boys, saying, Guys, you've got to get wisdom. Some of you will say, How do you get wisdom? I'll tell you what, go after it with everything in you. It's more important than all your money. It's more important than your family. It's more important than anything else in this life. Go get wisdom. He says, and if you don't aspire to it that way, you won't have it. It's kind of like Jesus said when he says, seek first the kingdom of heaven. All these other things will be given unto you. You've got to seek it first. So you will not receive wisdom if you don't want it. And if you get it, it'll cost you everything, but you'll get everything back hundredfold. That's how ambitious you have to be to get wisdom. We'll talk more about how you then enter into the wise life in just a few moments. But here you can see how in the Old Testament, and we studied this some years ago in Amen, when we looked at through, went through the Proverbs, and we saw their proverbial wisdom. And in the Old Testament, wisdom is given in proverbial ways by and large. For example, train up a child in the way he shall go, and when he is old, he'll not depart from it. And what Solomon is saying is, boys, this is my observation as as a senior citizen. I've looked around and I've seen that when boys are trained up the way they're supposed to go, they they may mess around, but eventually they'll come back to it. And, for example, uh, if you're not lazy, uh, then you'll be prosperous. Well, you know, 95% of the time, these kind of proverbs actually describe life as we observe it. But then there are 5% of the time when it doesn't seem to work. You've been a decent parent. You basically loved your child. You taught them the Bible and took them to the church. And they grow up and act like hellions. You say, where in a blank blank that come from? Well, that's the 5% we need to talk about. And then we'll take you from Proverbs and turn you right over to Job. (laughs) And Job is, remember, we studied Job as wisdom literature. And what Job is teaching us is things don't work out formulaically. You know, the Proverbs are very good formulas. And they, they'd sort of frame up the way life normally works. But it doesn't always work that way. Life is complex. So you turn to Job and you see, it makes no sense until the end 
when God shows you who's sovereignly in charge of all things and he's working all things together for good even when you don't understand it. Or we turn to Ecclesiastes. You know, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Who can figure it out? Uh, everything's worthless. Why spend my time doing anything because we're all going to die and it goes off to somebody else? Until you get to the end of Ecclesiastes and he says, fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. So, yes, if you try to truncate life and make sense of it below heaven, life below heaven won't make sense. You have to include heaven. Fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. And you have to be eternally minded and heavenly minded to make sense out of earth. That's what Ecclesiastes is telling you. So, life doesn't always make sense in this three score and ten or this four score. You know, our 70 or 80 years. It doesn't because it only makes sense from the scope of eternity. That's what wisdom literature teaches us. So Paul is picking up the concept of wisdom. He's saying wisdom has always been the most precious divine gift uh, that God gives us. And you certainly see, I mentioned there the text Luke 2.40, where when Jesus is described as a 12-year-old, how is he growing? In wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So Jesus grew in wisdom, and of course he amazed the rabbis with his wisdom. You remember when he was only 12 years old? So we want our 12-year-olds, and some of you here are around 12 years old, we want you to grow in wisdom. And we'll talk a bit more about what that is. Now notice Paul says in verse 6b that it is not the wisdom of this age, it is not the wisdom of this world, or of the rulers, the powerful people, I remember when I started working for a large corporation right out of college, it's very intimidating. You have people who are, who are vice presidents who seem like demigods uh, in the community. They sort of appear and everyone bows and then they disappear and go up to the sixth floor offices and just never see them again. And then next month they'll appear and everybody bows and scrapes and they go back up to the sixth floor office. And you hear that they fly around in their jet, executive jet and they're meeting important people around the world. But you never see them until they descend from the sixth floor and come down and make their appearance again. And we all bow down and listen to them with amazement. And then they go back up to the sixth floor. And when, when you're a 23-year-old, you're just thinking, man... I know I could never be one of those people, but boy, they sure are powerful. And the thing that you would dread more than anything else is saying something stupid around the demigods. And that's the reason that you kind of keep your mouth shut and you ask them simple questions like, how are you today, sir? You know, and you don't want to say anything stupid because they're the wise and the powerful people. Paul is saying BS. He said, that's, he said, that's not where wisdom comes from. It doesn't come from the rulers of this age. It really doesn't. And I guarantee you now as an old man, I'm just, I laugh at myself. What made me think that about those people? You know, as I got to know them a little bit through the years that I was there, I realized, you know, they really do have lots of problems. They don't have that much wisdom maybe, but they sure are powerful in business. And so Paul is saying that you can't ascribe wisdom to those who are the successful people in the world. Now, we have nothing against success. I'm all for it. If you happen to be successful, praise the Lord. I'd like for you to be successful. But that doesn't make you wise. And you didn't, you're not successful necessarily because you were wise. You may be because you were wise, but not necessarily. A lot of success, successful people are not very wise at all. And Paul says, the wisdom I'm talking about is not what you've been taught to think, that the really wise people are the prestigious, the powerful, and the prosperous people. No, 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 no. It's not that way at all, he says. In fact, you look in the scriptures, and in Proverbs 1, 7, what did Solomon say to his kids? Let me tell you, boys, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's where it all starts. Someone must fear the Lord. You look in, in Psalm 14, what was wrong with the world? Says David. They said there is no God. And they were acting as though there's no God. That makes them fools no matter how much money they have. No matter how brilliant they are. They're brilliant fools because they say there is no God. And they do not seek Him. So Paul is saying you have to redo your categories. And our categories, the way we were kind of brought up, is that everything's upwardly mobile. And these are the categories that we want to live by. You know, honesty is a good thing. It's a good policy. Because you'll advance if people trust you and you want everybody to trust you. So we, we just, 
we're functioning even in our moral lives with the categories of foolishness. And Paul says, I want you to function with the categories not of this world, but with the categories of true wisdom. In James chapter 3, you see that James talks about true wisdom and worldly wisdom. Heavenly wisdom and worldly wisdom. And there are two different things. Worldly wisdom is shrewdness. Shrewdness. That's worldly wise. But heavenly wisdom, says James, is peaceable and righteous. Heavenly wisdom fears God. Heavenly wisdom seeks to please God and serve our neighbor, not shrewdness. And, of course, Jesus teaches a certain form of shrewdness, doesn't he? Spiritual shrewdness. But that's very different from the kind of shrewdness that seeks to put, number one, you ahead of everybody else. That's the shrewdness of this world and its best wisdom. But Paul says in verse 7, it's not the wisdom of the world, but it is the wisdom of God. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Oh, wow. Uh, you can see in Proverbs chapter 3, if we were to turn back there, Solomon speaks of wisdom as creating the world. He, he, he personifies wisdom and says wisdom actually created the world. We just to say wisdom comes from God. God is wisdom. So if you have God and you fear Him, you'll receive Him. And in Him, you'll receive wisdom. That's what the Old Testament is teaching. And I list verses there from Daniel. You remember the story. Daniel uh, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in Babylon. And they're teenagers. But they've been taught as teenagers how to live before God. And they choose not to live like the Babylonian young men who are being trained for the royal court. And their lives are threatened. But they choose wisdom over their own lives. And you remember that Nebuchadnezzar the king has a dream. And he decides that he's going to find out if his wise people really are wise. And he says, I want you to interpret my dream. And so the wise people say, very good, O king. Tell us what the dream was. No, 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 no. You tell me what my dream was. Oh, king, we can't do that. What do you think we are, miracle workers? We're wise people. You tell us a dream, we'll interpret it. No, 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 said Nebuchadnezzar. You're making me mad. And you keep that up, I want to take all your necks off. Unless somebody gives me the dream. Well, nobody could give him the dream. So all the wise people now are condemned to die. And Daniel says to the household servant, go tell the king that I can interpret dreams because God has given me the skill to do so. And so Daniel, who, whom God shows secret things, is able to tell Nebuchadnezzar his dream and the interpretation of the dream. And Nebuchadnezzar bows and scrapes and says, Oh, your God must be the real God. He gives you wisdom. Daniel is the illustration of someone who's in an unholy city seeking to be a holy man who stands up for what is righteous and peaceable, who fears God and fears Him over the King, the mighty and the powerful, fears God more than the King, and who then looks to God alone to give Him wisdom to live in this immoral world in which He was placed. And God elevates Daniel and gives him secret wisdom. Daniel's completely dependent upon him. When there was a rule in the kingdom that nobody could pray except to the gods of Babylon, first thing Daniel did was go down and open the windows and pray to God. And of course got caught for it and ended up in the lion's den. And of course you know what happened to everybody else. They were thrown in the lion's den because the lion wouldn't eat Daniel. Why? God protected him. Wisdom comes from God. If we're going to be wise men living in a, a falsely wise world, we have to look to God alone, fear Him alone, serve Him alone. He will then give us secret wisdom. That's what Paul is saying here. He's, he's using the same kind of language to talk about a Daniel. And he's basically saying to these Corinthian slaves and Im, people with immoral backgrounds and all the rest, he's saying to them, you all can be Daniels. This is not just for the spiritually elite. This is for followers of Jesus. The, the, the wisdom of God is poured out abundantly upon every follower of Jesus Christ. And you then become a wise person. That's the point he's making. And notice that he talks about this wisdom in verse 7 as that which is decreed before the ages. It's eternal wisdom. And look what it's for in verse 7. For our glory. 
<laughs> Isn't this amazing? Before all eternity, God decreed wisdom so that creatures who would become sinful creatures might be glorified, even as Jesus Christ was glorified. What a God and what wisdom this is. Sometimes we forget how powerful God's wisdom really is. Now, look at verses 8 and 9, and you'll see that Paul here says the world doesn't understand it. First of all, their behavior proves it. He says, none of the rulers, verse 8, of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. This is the only place Jesus is called the Lord of glory. Wisdom is to glorify us. Wisdom glorifies Jesus. And so he's the Lord of glorification. He's the Lord of glory. And how foolish to destroy the Lord of wisdom and the Lord of glory. But that's how foolish foolishness is. That's where the shrewdness of this world leads. It kills everything good. Just look at the destruction, the immoral behavior, the destruction of homes, the destruction of lives, the destruction of infants. Look at what's going on with the shrewdness and the power of the Western world. Look what we're doing to ourselves through our great power and money and military might. It, it, it's really so obvious. It's just right in front of us. And Paul is saying the world doesn't understand it. Their behavior proves it. And then notice, secondly, verse 9, their limitation precludes it. What's their limitation? Because they only have eyes that can see what's in this world. They only have hearts that can, they can uh, imagine things in this world. They only have ears that can hear voices in this world. But when you've been brought to Christ, you have eyes that can see beyond what the physical eye can see. You can hear beyond what the physical ears can hear. You can imagine beyond anything that you've imagined before. So wisdom takes us out of this world to see a larger perspective. And so he's saying basically that the world doesn't understand. Now, you say, so what? Well, let me, let me give you a so what here. So often when you're trying to influence someone in your family or among your friends for Christ, and they just, it just bounces off their head or they say something completely irrelevant and stupid or they call you stupid or try to make you feel silly, silly when you're talking about your relationship with God, just bounces off their heads, bounces off their hearts. You get mad at them, don't you? Especially if it's a family member. Just get mad at them. I mean, I'm really ticked off. And then you just dig in a little deeper. Well, you're stupid. <laughs> Guys, do you see what Paul's saying? Why are you getting mad at these people? They can't understand. You're supposed to feel sorry for them. Think of this. You wouldn't have believed any of this stuff if the Holy Spirit hadn't come into your heart and given you the gift of wisdom. And I'll tell you why you wouldn't. It's like believing in a fairy tale. It's like believing, and this is far more than believing in the tooth fairy uh, or, the, or the Easter bunny or Santa Claus. I mean, this is, think how wild this story is. Oh yeah, God, who is triune, sent his only son to be born I mean, get this, in the womb of a peasant woman in northern Israel. And then he, he died as a criminal in the state of Rome. And that's the one who's supposed to save us from our sins. Of course, the Athenian philosopher says, this man's out of his head. He's crazy. You should feel sorry for people because to be saved, they have to believe that. <laughs> and they can't. So when something's bouncing off someone's head, what do you do? You don't get mad at them. You sympathize with them and say, I know. You know. But for the grace of God, I wouldn't have believed this either. But I tell you what, it's true. It really is true. What seems like a fairy tale is true. And you pray for them. You sympathize with them and you pray for them because you can't talk them into it. It's like trying to talk a log into walking. You can't do it. It's like, it, well, it's, it's like Ezekiel who said, God told Ezekiel, Ezekiel, let me, let me show you what this is like, how to persuade people. Let me show you how you do it by human persuasion. I want you to go preach in the graveyard. Ezekiel says, huh, say that again. Preach in the graveyard. Why should I preach in the graveyard? They're all dead. That's the point I want you to get. Go preach in the graveyard. Okay, everybody listen up. <laughs> There's nobody there. It's all dead. It's just graves. Everybody listen up. So Ezekiel, I mean, you know, what does he know? He's just doing what God tells him to do. He starts preaching. The shin bone connected to the knee bone, the knee bone connected to the... And here, these bones start to rattle. 
And Ezekiel's going, my stars, <laughs> this preaching really does work. And Ezekiel says, what a powerful preacher I am. No, he doesn't either. <laughs> what a great God. So he, when you're going to this world, remember they're bound in worldly wisdom, which is actual foolishness. They're bound to it. They're blind. They can't see. They can't hear. And you've been told to go talk to these people. And you say, huh, what's the use? I agree, what's the use? Unless there's a God. A God who loves sinners and a God of wisdom who will go into your heart and go right from your heart into this other heart. And there happens to be a God who does just that. So go preach to dead bones, brothers. Don't get mad at them. It's like Ezekiel. You bones just won't rattle. What's wrong with you dead people? It's your foolishness that makes you think that someone's supposed to be persuaded by your keen arguments <laughs> and by your radiant lifestyle. It doesn't work that way. I'll tell you how it works. By divine wisdom. This is what the Spirit is all about, and that leads us to the next point. In verses 10 through 12, Paul says the Christian mind is divinely enlightened. The Christian mind is divinely enlightened. He says in verse 10, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. He's revealed to us apostles, and He's revealed it to you Corinthians. It wasn't just that the Apostle Paul comes preaching, it's that the Holy Spirit came preaching through the Apostle Paul and changed these hearts. And first of all, we see in verses 10b and 11, the reason is the Spirit knows everything. If the Spirit is on your side, brothers, you're in good shape. Because the Spirit knows everything. The Spirit is omniscient. The third person of the Trinity. The very being of God. He's omniscient and omnipresent. David says, where can I flee from thy Spirit? If I go to the ends of the earth, even there, you're there. If I go to the depths of Sheol, you're there. You're everywhere. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. The Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And in verse 12, we're shown that believers have received the Spirit. This is the, this is the key to our wisdom. The Spirit knows everything, and the Spirit fills Christians. This is the second element of the gospel I'm talking about. You have Christ shedding His blood for the remission of all of your sins and for the imputation of His righteousness to your account so that you are just as acceptable in heaven as He is. On the other hand, you have the work of the Holy Spirit who enters your heart, gives you divine wisdom, cleanses you, and gradually sanctifies you so that you will be like Jesus Christ. Amazing work. The work of the Spirit is to glorify Jesus Christ through bringing you into conformity with Him. And you say, well, he sure has a long way to go, and I'll get, provide a second for that motion. He's got a long way to go. But that's his work. And he will glorify us. This wisdom is from all eternity for our glory. So the Spirit has come for our glory that we may glorify God by being like Jesus Christ. That's the great work of the Spirit. Now, the Spirit does this. He does this through... in. Uh, illuminating our minds to understand the Bible. He's the one who's speaking through the Apostle Paul in the Bible. So the same Spirit who is speaking through the Scriptures is in us, enlightening us to understand the Bible. That's the reason you have any understanding whatsoever. Is that the same Spirit who inspired the Bible is illuminating you. You understand how, how miraculous this is. The Bible it comes to us miraculously through these men. And through the Spirit working through us men, fallible though we be, enabling us to understand the Bible. And as we understand His Word and have a desire for Him, which is all Spirit-inspired, we increasingly become more like Jesus Christ. This is the great work of the Spirit. He teaches us, as Jesus says in, in, in John uh, chapter 14 through 16 in the Upper Room Discourse, the Spirit teaches us everything that God has given for us to know. He gives it to us as a gift. And our hard heads are increasingly melted so that the truths of the Word can come through us. So we look to the Spirit. That's the reason that we pray, God, send your Spirit. 
Now, when the Spirit comes, it's kind of like you get glasses. If I take mine off, you all are a big blur. And if you didn't have your spiritual glasses, the world would be a big blur to you, and God would be a big blur. And you wouldn't see clearly. When the Spirit comes, ah, now I can see. Now, here's the problem, though, with so many men. They never clean their glasses off. Yeah, my wife will say to me sometimes, gosh, your glasses are dirty. I say, oh, yeah, I really hadn't noticed. And then I clean them and I go, oh, gosh, that's great. <laughs> I didn't know that. I wasn't seeing very well. And so often we just allow our glasses to get dirty. We're not reading the scriptures. We're not serious in growing in holiness. We don't let brothers talk into our lives. We're not active in participating in the fellowship of the church. We're just ignoring all the things that clean your glasses so that you can see clearly. But God has given us these glasses to understand and to read the Bible. If, I, if you asked me to read the Bible, I might be able to quote a few things from memory, but I couldn't read it, not without my glasses. But with my glasses, I can see. And I want to keep those glasses clean so I can see very well and take it in and understand. So the Spirit knows everything, and believers have received the Spirit. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8 in this classic text that, that we are the recipients of the Spirit. That's what makes us distinctive. Those who don't have the Spirit, the Apostle says, cannot obey the law of God. Cannot. Why? Because they will not. They've given their hearts to this world and its ways. And when you do that, you cannot obey the Lord. But the Spirit comes into our lives and enables us for the first time to walk with Him. Lon, you got a, a question. I hope you can hear this. Uh, Sandy, the first question was... Uh... Do you mean to tell us there's really not an Easter bunny or a tooth fairy? Uh, but the, here's you know, the I can't ruin it for some of the guys who are still here. here the, this is a good question. It says, how does the connection between wisdom, faith, and spirit work out in my life if I'm not sure I'm saved? Well, the first thing you want to do, is, there is a way that you can be sure that you're saved. And what you want to do is talk to somebody that you know is saved. <laughs> and someone who has... Uh, who has, ex has experience in sharing the gospel with you and working with you to see that you are saved. And so if you are uncertain of your salvation, you're going to be uncertain of the wisdom you have. So the wisdom that comes, comes with salvation. So you want to be sure that you have received Christ as Savior, and you want someone to guide you into that who will ask you the key questions that will help you to see whether, you really, whether you're just saying the words or you really are devoting your life to Christ. And before I leave that question, I just want to say one thing, that there are some guys who will struggle with this question all their lives. And let me tell you how that usually happens. One of two things. You will struggle with the assurance of your salvation either because you have one foot in two canoes and you're trying to live in this world and be successful and be shrewd according to the standards of this world and you're also trying to be a Christian man. I'm just telling you what, that doesn't do anything but split your legs. Uh, and just tear you up, and you'll always be wobbly. The other reason that men are sometimes questioning their salvation is because, frankly, they question everything. <laughs> Some of you have the gift of just being analytical, and you've got this wonderful sort of cynicism, and that's what makes you such, so good with numbers and with money and sometimes with uh, military, you know, you're not trusting anybody until they prove it. You just ask questions, ask questions, ask questions. Or you may be struggling with your own sense of security and who you are as a person. If you question like that in general, you're going to question God the same way. So we all come to God with the personality that we have. My personality is not to be like that. My personality is to be insensitive. So I come to God and say, well, of course you'd like me. <laughs> and how arrogant. My problem is arrogance. Well, of course I'm his child. And I have to remember what the text in the scriptures I need to go to is you're a worm. <laughs> you know, uh, and that's the reason I talk to you that way sometimes because I'm talking to myself. Uh, when we get really full of ourselves and really so sure of ourselves, we're just sure of ourselves. We're not sure of his grace. So that's my problem. But some of you have the opposite problem of, Lord, do you really love me? And when you go home, you're thinking, does she really love me? Do my kids really love me? And so that's your approach to human relationships. Your problem is not pride and arrogance. Uh, your problem is, is feeling some insecurity. Or you just have a thousand questions and you never really ultimately believe anything. You're always thinking of the other side of the story, the other side of the coin. 
If that's your personality, you're going to struggle with assurance in a different way than I will struggle. So, bottom line, don't compare yourself to anybody else. If you compare yourself to me, you're, you know, the only way you could be like me is to have the problem of pride and arrogance. Who wants that? So you want to take your personality and learn how to grow closely to the Lord with your personality, and it'll work out a different way for each personality. So it's either unrepentant sin where you're trying to live in two worlds, or it's usually a function of your personality. Sometimes it's because something really bad has happened. There's been a death in your family, or you've been hit with cancer, and you just say, God, who are you and who am I? So that'd be probably the third one. It can be circumstances that can rattle you temporarily. But the answer to all this is just come back to him with your whole self and just say, Lord, for whoever I am, please take me and work with me. Any other questions? Thank you. Great question, by the way. At least the second one was. Okay. (laughs) Roman numeral 3, verses 13 through 16. The Christian ministry is divinely empowered. Would you please look at this with me? He says that we teach and learn in the Spirit. We impart this in words, he says, verse 13, not taught with human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Do you understand that we learn in the Spirit? We teach in the Spirit. Some people will say, what does that mean? Uh, Some of you know the name Dr. Ed Clowney, who is a wonderful uh, biblical uh, theologian and, and practical theological teacher at Westminster Seminary for years, president of Westminster Seminary. And he had an occasion to be with Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, whom I've already mentioned on one occasion. And Dr. Clowney wanted to ask Dr. Lloyd-Jones this question. Uh, Doctor, he said, uh, because everybody called him the doctor. Doctor, what is preaching in the Spirit? Ed Clowney had written volumes on preaching, but he felt like he didn't have a grasp of what it means to preach in the Spirit. And in classic form, Dr. Lloyd-Jones said, oh, that's simple. And Dr. Ed Clowney thought, simple? I've been spending my whole life trying to search this out. I couldn't get the answer. And Dr. Lloyd-Jones said to him, Dr. Clowney, you know how it is when you come out preaching, you're just, you're just feeling exalted and just so full of joy that God had given you power in your preaching. You know that feeling? Dr. Clowney said, well, occasionally. He said, that's preaching in the flesh. <laughs> he said, you know when you come out and you feel that big? And like the weight of, the, of, of all creation has been there and you're so small and you feel unworthy. He said, that's preaching the Spirit. Now, I don't know. But I'm just simply saying that preaching the Spirit is when you know that your flesh has been abased and Christ has been exalted. And that's preaching the Spirit because that's what the Spirit is seeking to do. To exalt Jesus Christ, to edify His people, to draw them to be more like Him. That's what the Spirit does. So preaching in the Spirit, learning in the Spirit, is learning with the objective of glorifying Christ and being like Him. So we don't just teach an academic Bible study. We could do that. We teach academically, but it's in the Spirit. The Spirit's work is to draw you to Him. All kinds of personalities. Those that are doubtful, those that are boastful. All kinds of people, old and young, rich and poor. Those who have come from broken families and those who had daddies and mamas who loved them. Everybody. He's seeking to make you like Jesus Christ. That's the work of the Spirit. And that's how we teach in the Spirit. With the Spirit's intention and looking to Him for His power. So when you're teaching your Sunday school class or sharing your small group, you can often just say, Lord, quietly, you can say, Lord, help me say what is edifying to the people and glorifying to Christ, and lean on the Spirit. That's what it means to teach and to learn in the Spirit. So when you're learning, you're reading your Bible, remember to read it personally. God is speaking to you. You should expect to be spoken to this morning when you read the Bible. That's learning in the Spirit, as well as teaching in the Spirit. Now, notice, B, there is a natural person and a spiritual person. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, verse 14. They are foolishness or folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. As uh, Leon Morris said, if you read the commentary, he quotes a scholar named Finley who said, deaf men judging music. That's what it's like, deaf people judging music. To teach in the Spirit to people who are not in the Spirit. We understand this. You have to understand there is a natural person 
Then there's the spiritual person, verses 15 and 16. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. Do you understand if you're a spiritual person, you've been given the Spirit of God and you've been lifted out of all the condemnation of this world. You're lifted out from under the condemnation of God. You're lifted out from under your own self-condemnation. And you're lifted out from the condemnation of this world. We're judged by no one but God. And who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct Him? But we have the mind of Christ. Gentlemen, would you look at these last words just for a minute, which is what I have left. We have the mind of Christ. Do you understand this? This is what Paul is saying. How can you divide yourselves up denominationally or by your Sunday school classes or by your favorite pastor or your favorite teacher or your favorite author? How can you divide yourselves up like this? Do you not understand? You have the mind of Christ. And He's given wisdom to all of His people. And He's died for all of His people. And He's been raised for all of His people. And furthermore, you now have been given the Spirit of Christ. John says in his first epistle, you've been anointed with the Holy Spirit. You have the Spirit. This is what Christian means from the Greek word Christianos, which means little Christ. And you know what the word Christ means? Anointed ones. And what are you anointed with? We're told of Jesus, He was anointed beyond measure with the Spirit. So what are you anointed with? The Spirit of wisdom. You're little Christs. Something miraculous has happened to you. So Paul is trying to remind these men who come from unholy backgrounds and who live in an unholy city that the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you are now decidedly different than the folks that are in this world. And we're to grow in that even in an unholy city. We're to grow in that to be the men He has called us to be. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the gift of wisdom by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray as men, we may go into a world that doesn't understand and yet stand for what we do understand and gently and kindly and graciously be the men you want us to be. Make of us not just the little Daniels, but make of us the little Christs wherever we go. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.